I'm Omar Alni. In this episode of How the World Works, we're going to look at why we decide to do things that are going to be good for us in the future. But then, so often, we don't actually follow through. To look at that contradictory fact of life, I'm with an expert in behavioral decision making. He's Hal Hirschfield, professor at UCLA's Anderson School of Management. But before we get to the future, I want you to tell us what you do. What is the nature of your work? I think the best way to describe what I do and what I study is trying to get people to do the things that they say that they want to do. So I'm careful not to say help people make better decisions because, you know, how do you define better? But people often say that they want to save more, that they want to eat healthier, et cetera, et cetera, and then they don't do it. So how do we help people do those things that they can't seem to do? Okay, be a little more detailed then. Sure. How do you get to people to do what they want to do? How first do you find out what they want to do, and then how do you help them get there? Right. Largely speaking, the the topic areas that I'm interested in are things like how do we save more for the future? How do we eat healthier? And so I operate on the assumption that there are a lot of people who want to eat healthier and want to save more. We know this from the data. Data shows that people say that they want to be doing these things. About uh, four out of five Americans say that they want to be saving more or know that they should be but can't do it. So, so we take that as a given. Then how do we actually get them to do these things? That answer relies on essentially two strategies. Uh, one strategy is to say, let's try to get people to feel as if they have a stronger connection to the person that they'll become in the future. So recognizing that all of these long-term decisions that we make right now will have some benefit or some punishment accrued to some distant version of ourselves. If that's the case, maybe we can get people to make decisions that are more in line with their intentions if they can feel a stronger emotional bond to that future self. That's one strategy. The other strategy is to say, these choices, these decisions are so hard because it always involves making some sacrifice right now for some distant future person's well-being, somebody we don't even know. Maybe the strategy should be to make those sacrifices feel easier and feel less painful. Are you talking about delayed gratification? To some extent, delayed gratification plays into this. Delayed gratification is when we put off things that feel good right now for the future. Now, sometimes we can do that just because it's, it's, it's a good idea for us to limit the pleasures we have in the moment. We have other things to take care of. Sometimes if we choose to go with the gratifying option right now, it may mean that we rob our future selves of some sort of utility. We rob that future self of some sort of well-being, right? This is the classic example is saving and spending, or the marshmallow test that a lot of people may know about where you get kids to choose between one marshmallow right now or two if they wait 15 minutes, which is sort of analogous to the adult version of spending money right now and not having it for later or waiting and investing that money and then having it for later, but you get nothing right now. How do you overcome the idea that, uh, okay, I could do it now, uh, but if I delay it, I may not be able to do it again. This is one of the hardest things. This is one of the hardest aspects of long-term decision-making is the uncertainty about the future. One will we'll come around. Who knows what will happen? There, you know, 
you could be dark about this and say there could be an earthquake. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we don't know what will happen politically. We don't know what will happen in our own lives. And maybe I should just go for whatever I want right now. We see that type of thinking in populations where the future is especially uncertain. It may be rational to just do the things we want to do right now because who knows what will happen. We try to get around that by suggesting to people that let's look back on the past and let's look at the certainty with which things happened in the past and say, the chances are, you know, there's a good probability you will be around for a certain amount of time. There's a good probability that you will have X, Y, and Z happen. And so it may make sense to try to take care of that distant self. You know, you can take retirement as a good example. A lot of people say, oh, you know, who knows when I'll retire or maybe I'll die early, but you actually look at the numbers and a lot of people are living longer than they used to be. Uh, and a lot of people also, you know, with a pretty uh, good degree of certainty will experience some health event that may set them back financially or set them back in terms of work. If we know that's to come, we have some certainty around that, then it makes sense to be more prepared or to try to be more prepared at least. You talk about imagining yourself in the future yeah, as if your future self is different somehow from your current self. Right. But when I look back, I think, wait a minute, I'm the same guy that I was 20 years ago. Yeah. I'm not going to be all that different when I'm 20 years from now. Yeah. That's really interesting. A lot of people, by the way, like to think about their past selves as being very different than who they are now because yeah. they like to think that I've gotten a lot better. The me who was awkward and shy, that's not really me. That was the, you know, the younger, yeah. less cool version of me. When it comes to thinking about the future, you know, one of the things that we know from the research is that people tend to actually think of that future self as if it's another person. It seems like another person. Now, we're talking about a more distant self, 10 years, 15 years down okay. the line. This also changes with age. The older we get, the more certain we are about the future, the more that future self may seem like us right now. But the younger we are, our distant future selves feel more like other people, more like strangers, more like different people altogether. Here's one example. We can see this in the brain. We've conducted research a while ago now that showed that, you know, one thing we know is when we think about ourselves versus another person, there's different brain patterns. We see a similar difference in brain patterns arise when people think of the future self. The future self has more of the hallmarks of thinking of another person. And we can get more nuanced about this, but that's the sort of high-level takeaway from this. On a brain level, the future self looks like another person. Psychologically, the future self may feel like, emotionally, like a different person. What some of our research looks at is acknowledging that, saying, you know, it, it's okay that we think of that distant self as another person. What matters is what sort of relationship we have with that person. Is it somebody we feel close to or is it someone we don't really care about, don't really think about much? I saw a phrase attributed to you at one point, which was, uh, what, is the future, what have the people in the future ever done for us? Yes, yes, I've seen that. I love that. Yeah, yeah. I, there, was a, there was a banner that was hung in San Francisco. You know, what, what have future generations ever done for us? And I love that, especially in the climate change space. You know, a lot of the decisions I look at are what we would call intrapersonal, uh, whether I should save more for my retirement, whether I should eat healthier for my physical health. But climate change and environmental decisions, these are about other generations. And it, yes, we could say it, it might be about our own futures. We see some of this right now. Some of these changes are happening in our lifetimes. The sort of most dire consequences, the things that, that really seem like end of the world type scenarios, 
those in theory are not going to happen to us, but to future generations. And this is exactly that, you know, well, what have they done for us? What has future me done for me? You know, it's easy to shirk responsibility in those, if, if you take that perspective. I want to talk to you about what all this has to do with a business school a curriculum. But before I do, hmm. uh, talk more about the scientific research that you've done. I know you work with MRIs. You look into the brain. You yeah. indicated that yourself. What did you find out? What, what, what have you learned that's helpful in this context? Sure. So some of the neuroimaging work we've done um, first starts from this perspective that the brain is pretty good at telling what's me and what's not me. So it turns out when we think about ourselves, we see a pattern of activation in the uh, prefrontal cortex that's different from when I think about another person. We see more blood flow or more neural activity in this one part of the brain when I think about me compared to when I think about another person. Well, if the future self is thought of as another person, you'd expect that you would see a same difference in brain pattern, brain activity. And so what we did is, this is a while ago, we had research participants come into the lab. We put them into an MRI scanner. This is functional MRI, so you can actually look at blood flow patterns in the brain as people are making thoughts. And we had people make judgments about themselves now, about themselves in the future, about another person now and another person in the future. And what we found is that, yeah, the brain can tell what's me and what's not me. We see more blood flow in this one part of the brain when I think about myself now compared to another person. But we see a very similar pattern when people think about their future selves. The, put another way, the neural activity that arises when we think about another person looks a lot like the neural activity that arises when we think about our future selves. So there really is a distinction to be made there, even though we may think we're the same person and will be the same person in the future. Yeah, I think the, the, the knee-jerk response is that we are the same person as long as that person occupies our body and mind. But on an emotional level, even though we know that me in 10 years, you in 20 years, will still be us from an emotional level, from a psychological level, it really feels like it could be a different person altogether. And that's sort of reflected in the fact that in the brain, it really seems like a different person altogether. We look at that person as if it's another, another person. So does this then have implications for how you plan for the future? I think it has a number of implications for how you plan for the future. You know, one is when people are thinking about themselves in the future, we have to be we have to acknowledge that they may actually be considering another person. And so what does that mean in terms of the interest that they're planning for, the values that they're considering, the likes and dislikes that they're keeping in mind? The other uh, big insight that, that stems from this is that it may make a little more sense why sometimes people end up not making sacrifices today for the future. If that future self feels like another person, if it feels like a stranger to me, why should I ever make a sacrifice today for his benefit when I could just go about my life, do the things I want to do and not worry about that other guy. It's not to say that we don't make sacrifices for other people, right? We do. We, we make sacrifices for our kids and our parents and our spouses. The, the point is that if we can consider the future self in a similar light as somebody who deserves our duties and responsibilities, then we may be more likely to do things that put him or her in a better place. We're told so often to live in the moment. 
Yeah. To be mindful. Yes. Uh, to be aware of what's going on at all times. Yes. Is that contradictory to this idea of thinking about the future? It's not. You know, the, the work on mindfulness and being present, it, it's not trying to counteract people thinking too much about the future. <laughs> it's trying to counteract people going about their, their days and their lives mindlessly and not being fully immersed in the moment, not paying attention to the conversations they're having, not paying attention to their kids or their spouses, et cetera. So when the research tells us that there are important benefits to being present, what that's saying is it's important to be focused on what's happening in the here and now. That can also mean it's important to focus on what matters, both now and in the long run. I would classify decision-making that can benefit us in the future as a mindful decision, if in fact we want to have these benefits in the future. I think too often people think about this idea of being present to just focus on now, just focus on the present. And that's, that's not really the right way to think about it because that, that's more hedonistic. And hedonism is obviously not going to get us benefits in the long run. Hedonism also probably wouldn't be classified as being mindful or being present-minded in the sense of the sort of mindfulness tradition. So there are yeah. important distinctions to be made. I think so. Um, so how does all this apply in a business curriculum? No, it's a great question. The, you know, the, the way that I view this work as applying in the business curriculum and the business world is really more in the marketing angle. Uh, if you think about what marketing traditionally tries to do, it tries to convey messages, it tries to communicate information to consumers such that they can now understand something or realize the benefits of something that they may not have necessarily thought of before. So we traditionally think about this in terms of selling a product. You know, traditional marketing says, here's a product, we've got some benefits that we think you, the consumer, may value. The job of marketing is to better communicate those benefits so that we can create a good match in the marketplace between what the firm is offering and what the consumer wants. I would say modern day marketing has a bigger umbrella and includes communications to help consumers do the things that they say they want to do and to help uh, enact behavioral change, the types of changes that people say that they want to engage in. I say I want to eat healthier. I say I want to save more. I say I want to act more ethically, but I have a hard time doing that. Part of the job of modern marketing then is to figure out what sort of messages can we put out there to help consumers do these things? Uh, and not only that, what sort of products or environments can we create that can help consumers do these sorts of things that they say that they want to do? I'm a neophyte in this. I'm a reporter. I'm a cynic when it comes to marketing. Yeah. And it looks to me as if what a company wants to do is sell me on the idea that there is a benefit of whatever it is mm -hmm. that uh, they want to sell me, uh, whether or not it really is going to have a benefit to me or not. Right. It doesn't matter as long as I pay the price. And I think that is a perception of marketing that certainly is not ill-founded. And I think it comes from decades of companies using marketing to essentially sell stuff to people that they don't need. Yeah. We're in a different era now, and it's an era of transparency between consumers and firms, and it's an era of long-term relationships. And so it doesn't take much work to think through the negative consequences of selling people on things and ideas that will get a sale in the short term, but will lose a long-term relationship down the line. You know, it may be idealistic, idealistic to say that all companies are doing this. All companies are not doing this. 
But some of the best companies, some of the companies that have long-term relationships with clients or consumers recognize that what they need to be doing is creating a better match between the products they're creating and the things that their consumers actually want, need, and desire, uh, and then communicating that to them through marketing. That's when I think you get you get a better match. Now, sure, are there still companies out there? Are there still things that we're being marketed toward that we don't need? Absolutely. That's not going away. We can't imagine that it is. But we see more and more toward a move of this long-term relationship management. How difficult is it for a company to think in the long term when, in fact, they've got uh, various pressures on them from right. shareholders, right. from uh, hedge fund managers, and all the rest who want to see the money now? It's really difficult. The difficulty changes as a function of the industry that, that they're in. There's some industries that are really short-term focused. They're focused on quarterly reports. And, you know, the average CMO or CEO tenure is three to five years. And then it's hard to think longer than that because you've got one person making decisions for their tenure that is not really on the long term. You've got other industries. Academia is a good one. <laughs> where the time horizons are much longer. So, you know, one, one way around this is to think through what sort of pressures exist in the short term, but also what sort of benefits a company might want to see in the long run, what sort of values may uh, want to be realized over time, and then what sort of reward systems can be put into place so that an executive can pay attention to the short-term shareholders but also pay attention and be rewarded for decisions that can realize benefits in the long run. I'm not saying that's an easy thing to do. You know, there's a lot of reasons for the financial crises that we've experienced. There's a lot of reasons for the global recession of 08 and 09. One of them was short-term thinking. One of them was not recognizing the role that these subprime mortgages, et cetera, could play in the long run. And, and what might happen, what might be catastrophic if those go under. And I know there's a lot of different reasons. There's a lot of factors there, but this is just one. The question becomes, it seems to me, what are the long-term benefits uh, if, in fact, there are some? Milton Friedman famously said that uh, your only responsibility if you're running a company is to the shareholders and uh, yep. uh, nothing else matters. But uh, should companies have a social conscience? Is that what you're talking about? Or uh, are there some other more concrete benefits that they ought to be aiming for? Well, you know, I think this question, the first question of should companies have a social conscience has actually changed uh, recently into saying they have to. The, the trends that I've been looking at in the market suggest that you can't sit on the sidelines. You can't be a major firm and sit on the sidelines because now you don't just have shareholders. You don't just have investors and consumers. You also have employees. And as younger generations, I know, you know marketers love to talk about millennials and Gen Z, but it's real. As younger generations start entering the workforce, one of the things we know is they care more about, they care more vocally about socially conscious business practices and socially conscious pursuits. A company can't get away with just not doing anything there. We've seen more and more companies who may have never had anything to do with socially just causes or political causes ever all of a sudden dip their toes into that water because they, they essentially have to. If they do nothing, that's doing something. Where did that come from? Why do young people feel differently about it than others in the past? This is a great question. You know, studying generational differences is always difficult because we never know if something is specific to a generation or something that's specific to a time period in life. 
will they age out of this? You know, will people age into becoming more conservative and le <laughs> less passionate about these causes? My educated guess is that growing up through the financial crisis had an impact. You know, I think that may have shifted some perspectives away from a focus on consumerism and money and toward value-based beliefs and toward socially conscious causes and toward things that may be more, quote-unquote, passion pursuits. How do your colleagues at the business school react uh, when you have these kinds of conversations? Well, I try to do these conversations when they're not around. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I think I think we're seeing I think we're seeing changes. You know, both in consumer culture, but also changes in business academia as well. Now, that's not to say that everybody focuses on this type of work. I think there's there's still very much a room in the academy to look at traditional accounting and traditional finance and traditional economics, just as much as there is a call to look at the more behavioral or psychological aspects of these decisions and to look at the current trends, to look at the way that people are actually interacting with firms and interacting with the world. I think even in a corporate finance class where there's principles that are tried and tested over the years, you'd be missing the boat if you only looked at the bottom line, if you only looked at the types of things that have traditionally been associated with profit, because it's not the types of things that consumers are as focused on these days. So do you think consumers then are caring about whether the companies that they buy from have a social conscience or not? Are young people, young consumers actually taking that into consideration when they decide to get something rather than something else? Not all the time. But I think it's entering the picture more and more than it has before. So there's plenty of firms and companies from which consumers can purchase things that don't have socially conscious causes or, or may actually be doing things that would be considered against the grain. And I'm not saying that consumers have wholeheartedly boycotted them. But we see more of this. We see more of a focus on buying from green companies. We see more of a focus on buying from socially conscious companies or you know, if you just want to look at the numbers, Nike, when they got into the socially conscious space and really put out ads getting behind Colin Kaepernick, they saw a huge increase in their bottom line the next year. Now, can we tease that apart from just the market going up? No, it's really hard to do that. The amount that their profits increased is hard to say that was just because of natural trends in the market and easier to say they struck a nerve. They may have angered some people who don't have the same political beliefs as them, but they ended up capturing far more people who do and who then ended up buying more and paying attention more to their causes and to their products, if you will. That was pretty bold on their part. Yeah. But you risk a backlash. You always do. I, you know what? Oh, here's one of my favorite examples of this Manhattan mini storage. It's a storage company in New York City. They have these overtly political ads. They had one huge, huge side of the building ad that said, if you store your stuff outside of Manhattan, it may come back Republican. Now, are they going to anger Republicans? Sure. It's, it's, a, you know, it's a jab. Do they care? Probably not because who are their customers? Their customers are most likely younger, progressive Manhattanites who don't have enough space in their apartments to store things. The people who don't need Manhattan mini storage, the older, wealthier Republicans, are not their client base. And if they suffer a backlash from them, they may not care. In fact, there was a great interview with their chief marketing officer who said, the angriest emails were coming from Ohio. 
And it's Manhattan mini storage. They're not based in Ohio. Yeah. <laughs> so I think as with all marketing decisions, there's segments out there. And if you try to please all the people all the time, you may end up pleasing nobody. With these political or socially conscious things that may have more of a long-term value, you may end up isolating some consumers. The question I think that the firms and the executive leadership has to ask is, do we care? And will our business be better off by actually capturing more of the segment who actually may be our segment? So one of the things it seems to me you have to be very careful about then if you're going into business is the fact that whatever you do, given the internet and social media, everybody's going to know what you're doing. Yep, absolutely. This is the transparency that's you know much more prevalent now than ever has been. Consumers have way more of a voice now too. I know businesses may rightfully complain about Yelp due to some of their algorithms, et cetera, but what it's done is given sort of a megaphone for consumers to talk about any interaction that they've had and how they you know, want things to be different. That may be good in the long run because it could force some businesses to be more on their game. So this isn't just public relations then. This is really studying the audience, figuring out who it is you want to sell to. I should say the market rather than the audience. Yeah. And determining who it is, what it is, and, and uh, where they're coming from, regardless of what it is you're selling. I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, in, in fact, you know, traditional marketing suggests that – I always talk about this on my first day of class. If somebody hands you a product and says, sell it, it's too late. You've missed who the audience is. You've missed what the market will support. And you miss how to change features of the product or the service to match the things that your audience may want. And so, you know, traditional marketing suggests you start from the very beginning. Who's the audience out there? Where's the niche? Where's the gap? That's, where's the unmet need? How can we fix this? How can we fill that gap with things that somebody may want? Some of the things that consumers, not all of them, but some of them may want, are these socially conscious pursuits that may have more long-term value to them. So you're talking then about preparing students to, for a marketplace that may be completely different from what we have thought about as the marketplace in the past. And largely that's true. When I first teach my students, it's normally at the very beginning of their two-year MBA. Two years used to not be that long of a time. And, uh, you, know, and it, you, you could take a good bet that the marketplace would be pretty similar when you get out. In this world, I would say that's not always a great bet. Lots of things can change. And we see trends changing faster than they did before because the media cycles faster and with social media and Twitter, et cetera. The news cycle is faster, right? Which also means that when we try to prepare students for what the marketplace is, it may look different than it did 10 years ago. It may also look different in two years than it did when they came in. And so that's, you know, it's one of the reasons why we try to emphasize some of the principles more. You know, this is, it's one thing to say, here's what the marketplace is right now, but another to say, here's what we think is underlying this and how some of those political zeitgeists, et cetera, will still be present or not be present in a couple of years' time. So what are some of the principles that you try to inculcate into people? You know, I, I would say the biggest principle that we try to put out there, you know, in the teaching of marketing is that it's the one discipline that starts with the customer where you have to actively take their perspective. It's fine and well if you think you've got the best product in the world, but if the customer out there doesn't see it, if they don't find the need for it, it's not going to sell. So starting with the customer's perspective Seeing the world through their eyes and stepping into their shoes is probably the most important principle that we try to teach. It's only when you do that that you can start to recognize where the gaps are and, and what might need to be fulfilled. 
Brave New World for Business. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> Al Hirschfield, thanks a lot. It's been great to be with you. Thank you so much, Warren. This has been How the World Works from UCLA's Anderson School of Management with Professor Hal Hirschfield. I'm Warren Olney. Thank you.